my perception of alternative protein is significantly different. We have two very separate food supply chains, right? There's a supply chain that goes from the farm. The new alternative proteins and the technology will allow us to integrate. Food actually is supposed to get cheaper over most of our lives. Especially uh, let's get ready to rumble! from Silicon Valley, the most innovative spot on earth. Corporate, the place for corporate executives that transforms innovative threats into business opportunities. And now, let's get ready to rumble with the host, Tommaso. And uh, good morning. Good morning, everybody out there. Let's get things started. Good morning from San Francisco. Well, let's kick off. Thanks, uh, gentlemen. Uh, thank you, Ron, uh, Joshua, Walsh, uh, to joining us. Well, what's a virtual coffee? So first of all, for those of you who have been uh, you know, watching us, virtual coffee is really this, you know, together having a, a zip of a coffee and as a good Sicilian, I'm kicking off things with my espresso. So, you know, cheers to that. And then from a, from a perspective of, uh, of what we do with a virtual coffee, in very simple words, it's nothing else than a curated panel, a hand-picked panel of industry fellows. And today we'll introduce now, I have the pleasure to introduce some of them and have a chat and, and, and to talk about and discuss the to future-proof traditional markets. Now, we have built these virtual coffees in terms of, of, of episodes. In fact, we have here the episode one, this first episode of our second season. And every season has a different topic. This, this time, our season has the topic of the new normal alternative protein, right? And in our uh, panel, as I was mentioning already, and I have the pleasure today to uh, introduce Ron, Ron Shigeda. Ron, let me hear real quick. Uh, double down on your bio, contract specialist at Solar Bioprocessing. And Ron has been an early investor in alternative protein startups such as Clara Foods, Memphis Meats, Jelter, New Wave Foods, uh, Finless Foods, among others. He has been an entrepreneur as a founder of Wild Earth, the first alternative protein for dog food, and now works with several companies as a product consultant in this space. Ron, welcome. Hi, great, great to join you all, Tommaso. Thanks. And then we have Joshua, Joshua Nixon, co-founder and CEO of Prime Roots. Uh, Josh is a scientist, entrepreneur, foodie, a bioengineer with strong ties with UC Berkeley in the Alternative Meat Lab program, as well as Indobio. Josh, welcome here in our virtual coffee. Thanks, happy to be here. And Walt, Walt Dufloc, SVG Ventures Executive Innovation Leader, with over 25 years of experiences in high growth startups and fifth generation family farmer with a large agriculture operation here in Monterey next door, which includes specialized crops and cattle operation. Gentlemen, welcome again. Ready to talk some alternative protein? Ready. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, let's, let's, let's kick off things. And uh, we have here on one hand, a couple of questions from our side as well as in uh, our second part, we will be answering three questions uh, from the audience. Walt, I would like to start out with you. Uh, 25 years of experience in high tech plus fifth generation 
of family, pharma. So a lot has changed, right? And alternative protein, every day we see more and more acceptance. Let me ask you one thing. I'm curious to hear your opinion on how should traditional protein producers view alternative protein producers? This is more from a friend or a foe or both. What are your thoughts on this, Walt? Yeah, it's interesting, Tomasa. So I think the traditional, and we and we work with a lot of the traditional protein guys, right? The large corporate partners uh, thrive, and, and I've got some relationships beyond that, obviously, from our farming operation. I think the traditional protein folks are, are currently viewing alternative producers as both, and the answer is it depends, right? So if you think about the protein producers that have a quality brand and have access to distrib distribution partners that allow them to leverage uh, the alternative protein brand. So if you already get to market efficiently and you can add alternative proteins as a plus one to that relationship, that can be a win for both sides, right? The old 101 make three. So that new product just creates a revenue opportunity for an existing channel and a partner. So those that's one view, the friend view. The faux view is when the protein producer doesn't have a quality brand, maybe they're a white label or they they don't get to the consumer in a way that's obvious for their brand. So they see alternative proteins as fighting for that same dollar, right? Mm. And so in that case, it's more of a faux relationship. And I think they're more concerned about what alternative proteins can do, because if you see it as a zero sum game, either you win or alternative protein wins um, and you don't have much of a brand to leverage or a distribution channel to leverage, it's naturally going to fall into the faux category. And I think you know, it, it's it's going to be interesting because I think it's the ones that see it as friendly are going to probably tend to do more partnerships, do more testing and do more trialing and probably have more success because they have that brand. The ones without brands, it's a tough situation to get out of, right? It may it may just be a faux relationship for, uh, for the foreseeable future. So on one hand, we have opportunities because the new space, right? And on the other hand, we have some form of uh, healthy competition, right? Definitely something a new ingredient, a new, a new perspective. And it's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Walt. Ron, you have been involved with, uh, with early stage startups as in, in alternative protein. If we think ahead, right, uh, what, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, right now we talk about, you know, uh, meat and eggs and fish, right? How do you see the, the future um, beyond that? I think the alternative protein movement in terms of just creating protein uh, as an alternative to meat for food uh, has been, is, is doing very well. But I think that one of the things that people don't understand is that uh, there's been a long-term promise of food that goes all back, way back to the ancient Greeks that you know, food and health are in, you know, very much intertwined. Uh, it's been more or less a snake oil sort of operation in food for the past hundred, well, maybe forever, but certainly for the past 30 years very intensely to promise better health from the food. And the customers are starting to hear all of these and sort of not seeing that the food is actually delivering that. And as biology becomes much, much more, all of the knowledge that we've sort of gained from all these hundreds of years of academic research is now starting to be something that we could actually incorporate into the food. And the new alternative proteins and the technology will allow us to integrate that knowledge into how we make the food, then that promise will continue to be actually start to be realized. And I think that's the real opportunity in the next uh, maybe 30, 50 years. Short term, actually, can I just mention something about what, what Walt said, is that you know, even in the early days when we were talking to Clara Foods, which was in the Stone Age six years ago, you know, we found both immediately. They were friends immediately. And I think that's partly because some people sort of see the problems 
coming from from outside, those people see alternate proteins of foe. But people who are CCC that the consumers are being driven to this from problems that are internal to the food system already, I think they are much more open to working with these companies because they feel that they have to resolve their issues. So that's how I sort of see some of that dichotomy happening, you know, with people split up. Very interesting. Josh, you are already a founder and very successful founder and scientist entrepreneur and foodie, right? In this perspective. So what is the essential in your point of view regarding alternative protein if we think the future backwards, right? What's, what's the outlook like? What's important there? So I think that over time, uh, I have a hypothesis that there will be generational shifts. I know that my perception of alternative protein is significantly different than someone who might be a little older than myself as someone who grew up with both alternative protein and meat in the household when I was younger. And I think it's created a certain level of openness. And then you have to ask the question, what does a child who's raised on mostly alternative protein and maybe some exposure to meat and seafood at a young age, where do they grow up to? Where do their perceptions lie? And what do they end up craving? And so when you look at how food you're raised with, that you interpret as comfort food, how does that affect your eventual taste when you become a purchased uh, decision maker older in life? And I think when we look past the 30 year mark, we should be looking towards how are people who are new mothers and new fathers considering raising their children today? How are they going to feed their children? And then what ripple effects is that going to have down the line on their taste? So you're talking about an individualization and keeping track of it? Is this, is this your... I guess what I mean is that as things are on the market and available and you are able to be exposed to them at a young age, I think it completely changes how you perceive them when you become older. Mm, and so okay. I think that right now we're seeing an increased openness to meet alternatives. And I think it's for precisely that reason is a large portion of it. You know, the millennial, the Gen Z has a very different exposure to these products from a young age on top of the, um, the, the, the environmental motivation and social concerns that are very shared amongst that generation. And I see that really just compounding upon itself as Generation Z and millennials have children and raise those children with their own values in mind. Those generations are going to grow up one day, right? And I think at that point, we may start to see a shift away from meat and seafood, even as a flavor palette that people are interested in, maybe not entirely, but at least that possibility starts to become open where it might seem foreign today. Very interesting perspective. Thanks for, for, for sharing that. Walt, we had already a, a chat around this topic and I would like to pick up again on that double down on, on supply chain challenges, right? So what are actually, how is it changing in terms of supply chain with alternative pro protein? You know, what's impacting traditional protein producers and, and what will especially and most probably change uh, following this situation we are in, this, this pandemic situation. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, it's the question right now, Tommaso, right? I mean, we, we found out the last few weeks that we have two very separate food supply chains, right? There's a supply chain that goes from the farm to the grocery store, and there's a supply chain that goes from the farm to the restaurant and food service business. 
they're about equal, right? The, the grocery store chain's about half the food and the restaurant food service is about half the food. And, and it turns out that, that the farming friends that I have, they generally optimize for one or the other. They get really good at, at doing food service or they get really good at doing the grocery stores. And when we shut down all the restaurants as part of this pandemic shutdown, um, we really had a massive impact on that second set of food mm. supply chain activity. And so all of a sudden you see situations where you've got food that is going to go to waste because it's perishable, right? Or it's livestock and it's got a, it's got a shelf life and a supply chain stuff. And so how do you, how do you fix that when it's sort of thrust upon you overnight? What we found out is that the supply chain that is optimized for fresh, just in time delivery of food and livestock is under massive pressure when something unexpected at scale shows up. And that's exactly what this pandemic is, right? And so you've got the food supply chain challenges as a, as a threat one. At the same time, you've got labor challenge as threat two. So entire mm. meat production facilities like the one in South Dakota are getting impacted because workers in close quarters in cold environments are getting coronavirus in large numbers. Uh, one mm. meat packing mm. facility that Smithfield has up in South Dakota, that you guys may have seen the news on, 300 workers got it. And that is not unique. That's happening in multiple facilities. So you have two situations. The supply chain's breaking down. Contracts are getting broken. On the other hand, labor is not there to do the work and get the meat into the supply chain. So ironically, and there's a great podcast from Damian Mason, the, the business of mm -hmm. agriculture, where he talks to some of the folks in the business and they say, it's less of a problem now. Expect major problems in three to six months, right? Because the pig that you don't grow now isn't there to be bacon in six months, right? And so mm -hmm. on the supply chain. So the no, so what comes out of this is the notion that a lot of consumers, and as I call them, they're agriculturally social distancing. They don't know a lot of farmers and they, and they tend to have simplified solutions like, well, why can't they just pivot and go direct to consumer? Why can't they pivot away from good service and go right to the, the grocery store chains? The reality is the packaging, the requirements around, around disclosure, the, the size going from pallets to small boxes, it's super hard, right? So when you're used to dealing with Cisco, S-Y-S-C-O, not the other Cisco, and you try and pivot to Safeway, that's really hard. And the mm -hmm. notion that they go direct to consumer, you and I know what it takes to build a Google search engine presence or a social media presence, super hard. The notion that farming operations could just turn that on on a dime, that's a big ask. And it's quite honestly, not going to happen. So you end up with what's going to happen is I think the entrepreneurs, the innovators, they're going to come up with some, some more resilient supply chain options. We've seen USDA enable $3 billion in food buys to get food from food waste into food banks, right? Which is a huge thing in nonprofits. We've seen California doing the same type of stuff. And we've seen individual entrepreneurs build sites that can, that can take this food waste, this supply chain breakage and get it plugged into the people that need it. And so uh, I think that's, that's what you hope comes out of this is a more resilient supply chain that if this happens again, we're, we're ready and adaptable because um, a, a lot of weaknesses got exposed the last couple of weeks. Yeah, a lot of changes and, and a lot of uh, new perspective and a lot of new activities, are, especially not just in the alternative food protein, right? And supply chain is massively impacted. Ron, question for you. Uh, you, beyond your startup's investment, you've been involved with corporations, right? And uh, around the, under the umbrella of, of corporate uh, innovation. Tell us 
what, what has been successful or slash unsuccessful uh, for those larger companies when, when they handle alternative uh, protein? Share with us some, some insights on that. Yeah, it's been interesting. Well, first of all, I mean, there's two sides of that. One of them is just going back and you know, alternative proteins aren't new. I mean, soy as a meat substitute has been out there since the 80s. But like a lot of new, like a lot of new things, it's also old. And so you can learn a lot just by looking at the experience that people have had. You know, it's interesting. I like one of my favorites is Kentucky Fried Chicken. KFC uh, a few years ago, because chicken prices were rising, you know, they were trying to figure out how to fill in the low end of their meal, their meal offerings. And they produced this thing called a bowl. And, uh, and you know, so what they did was they just started mixing in the starch, like the, the mashed potatoes and the corn with the chicken, so they could afford to make it a $4 bowl. And then a comedian, Patton Oswalt, got a hold of it and went viral. It was great for his career, but now the bowl is relegated to the lower right-hand corner in small type in the drive-in menu. And, you know, and so those are the kind of challenges everybody's facing because really the price of this meat is rising faster than, well, faster than the price of food. Maybe it's just going at the price of uh, rate of inflation, but food actually is supposed to get cheaper over most of our lives, especially if you're over 30. Food, you expect food to get cheaper every year. And so KFC is fighting that, you know, and uh, they truly really didn't come up with a solution to that problem, right? But now, this last couple of weeks, they started putting out basically plant-based chicken nuggets and they're selling very well. And it's really amazing. It's kind of what Josh was saying. It's really amazing how the attitude of the younger consumers has changed and they're very, very open to this but they they kind of want they kind of want a certain kind of flavor for it. And hitting that mark is really hard. I'll give you one more example. Last year, Quaker Oats rolled out something they call an oat beverage. You know, the number one oat brand in North America, maybe even in the Western Hemisphere, then had to pull back its new offering because it wasn't it was not a successful rollout. So it's uh, getting that message right is very very important in the short term. For the next few years, a lot of the big companies have problems making that fit work. They just can't seem to connect to the right message. And the whole plant-based movement is actually becoming a template for how this happens. That's actually starting to settle in. It's kind of exciting. Wow, very interesting. So speaking of challenges, Josh, a last question here before we start taking a question from the audience. As an entrepreneur in alternative protein, what, what is the, the biggest barrier of entry that, that you guys are facing? What's, what's the biggest challenges? I mean, I know as, a, as an entrepreneur, you have many on the table. What, what are you facing right now? So I think as an entrepreneur uh, in alternative protein, I think the fundamental choice you're faced with is how innovative do you want to be, right? There's a lot of opportunities that you can use the technology of the 80s. You know, you can use soy, textured vegetable proteins, and you can get a product out very quickly that way. You can get a product out pretty simply that way, but you haven't done much new. And so when you start to try to do something new and innovative, there's going to be manufacturing challenges because you're going to need to do things a little bit differently. There may not be existing co-manufacturers that do exactly what you need, right? And so you can work around this. You can find, you know, creative solutions. But I think there's, there's a balance uh, for startups of innovation and, and speed to market, really, and cost. And so we've seen everything from there's, you know, people just kind of white labeling and rebranding existing products all the mm. way up to people trying to genetically modify and cr create new 
protein, animal proteins inside of yeast cells, things like that, like Clara Foods, it was mentioned earlier, right? And so between that, you have this large spectrum of innovation and costs where if you're going to try and do something pretty complicated, it's going to take a lot to get there and there's some risk inherent in that. And so I think there's always a challenge of where do you fall there? What makes the most sense? Does it make sense to spend this extra million dollars on R&D? Does it provide value to the consumer? And does it actually move the needle in terms of the brand promise and in terms of the quality of the food you're able to offer? And I think that's a, that's a choice that you find yourself faced with quite often. So you're basically saying one is more on the branding side and you were mentioning repackaging, well, right? Yes. The other one is more on the, on the innovation side. But the question really is if we have a, a customer-centric perspective, right? What, what's the value, right, for the customer, right, inter, under the umbrella? Yeah, I mean, as, as a scientist, I can have fun doing R&D and I can have fun right. creating new things. But at the end of the day, it has to provide value to the customer. And right. so I think there's always a challenge, you know, in a startup, you have limited resources at some level. Right. And so the challenge becomes... Where am I getting the most bang for my buck? Where am I going to provide the most value to the customer with this research and development and innovation? Right, right. No, very interesting. Well, thank you, gentlemen. And now um, let's switch to the second part and uh, ask, let's collect here some more questions from the audience throughout our channels. I see my team already here picking some of uh, those uh, questions. We have three questions already selected. Very interesting question. This question is for, for let's kick off things with Josh. Josh, here is a question <coughs> from Matt. He has a, he is a bio major at San Francisco Diego State University. How personalization could affect the alternative protein state in the future? Examples such as individual nutrition needs or protein origin preference, vegetarian or not. Josh, what, do you, what can you share with us on that? I think the biggest barrier to personalization in food um, in terms of a packaged personalized product, which I'm, that's how I'm going to answer this because I believe that's how it's being asked. Obviously, through mixing different foods in your diet, you can create quite a bit of personalization that way. But in terms of something that comes packaged to you in a personalized fashion, I think the biggest barrier there has been cost because in traditional food manufacturing methods, the way that we make cost go down is that we mechanize the process in ways that tend to produce a consistent output. And also, you want to have consistent quality of food. And so if you're going to play with a lot of different variables, you need to know that all possible combinations that are valid truly come out with something that's delicious and has a good shelf life. And so I think that the opportunities for food personalization I would expect to see them first in drinks, where the bottling line is a place that you could much more easily create a mixture of ingredients that would retain stability, rather than in more solid foods, where uh, I, I think that would be much more difficult. And so I think there exists some opportunity to start creating a personalized flavor and nutrition, but I don't think the cost could necessarily be achieved well um, in a packaged product, unless it's a fluid product, at least given current methods that I'm aware of. Thanks for sharing this. Ron, Walt, any, uh, any thoughts on this? You, would you like to add anything? 
You know, not directly to personalization, but just to make the, to, to carry on Josh's point on the fluids, it's interesting. There was another great podcast on the milk industry, right? And so while okay. core milk has mm-hmm. gone down in demand for decades, right? And, and Borden's and Dean, if you haven't seen those, two of the biggest milk producers basically went bankrupt in the last 12 months. And yet what's carrying the freight on the growth side for milk is the alternative milks, right? So the soy milk, almond milk category is doing well. And why is that? Some of it's because they offer a better, a better solution. And some of it is just candidly better marketing. So the, the milk folks didn't do a great job of marketing. The gallon of milk you still buy in the store looks like the same gallon of milk your grandfather used to buy 50 years ago. And the new kids come out with better packaging, better messaging. And so it's a growth category for the new milks. It's still a fading category for the old milks. And, and I think that's, you know, that's some of the opportunity for the alternative proteins is to get that better messaging, better packaging, and, and, you know, some of it is personalization to the extent that you know what that customer needs exactly. So we'll see if it follows the milk model uh, and can be growth in spite of it or, or if it goes some, some other direction. That's very interesting because we hear over and over again. I mean, when, when, when you deal with innovation, you have always uh, the, the big challenge is, is finding product market fit, right? And then changing the behavior if you talk bits and bytes, right? But on the alternative, on the alternative protein side, you really hear a lot more about the positioning and the packaging as well, really the marketing activities because the product looks the same or it should also have similar aspects as, as, as the non-alternative protein. But, but the marketing has as a, as a major role to play, right? That's what, what we keep on hearing over and over again. And also Joshua mentioned that very, very vividly in terms of, you know, how much marketing and how much R&D costs are, are we actually willing uh, to spend. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Second uh, um, question here goes to, here I have Paul from Boston asking Ron. Ron, some companies like Nova Meat and Redefine Meat are turning uh, to 3D printing. Well, it seems that individualization and, and rapid supply is, is pretty big. Well, this technology is still in, uh, in, in the R&D phase, down the road, it could um, open possibilities for serious plant-based meat customization. Do you see companies and individuals creating their own custom alternative meats in the future? What are your thoughts on this? You know, it's interesting, this panel is kind of like, you know, a lot of, a lot of the food and innovation right now, even at the very high-tech end, is really focused on just right now. Most of these startups, uh, Josh will tell you, you have a runway of 18 months to reach profitability. And so if the R&D can't connect to a product within the two-year timeline, preferably more like a year, then uh, it's probably not going to be possible to sort of bring a particular innovation to the market. So there's still a place for long-term R&D thinking and sort of plumbing the research. I think that customization of product is a very deep question. There are people who are trying to customize meals that actually have a lower glycemic response, for instance, but it turns out that you can't just buy that in a package. If it had, it would already be on the market, to be honest. Anybody, it would have been detected if there's one meal that's better for Mm. everybody. And the Mm. same is kind of true for 3D printing and meat. Like, you know, I mean, you you buy a steak, you buy a roast, but you don't look to see how the two roasts differ. And so I think what I'm gonna say is that my prediction is that 3D printing will be used for R&D and prototyping. But when you start manufacturing meat, you're gonna find a more efficient way to utilize that manufacturing, what you've learned from 3D printing to try to make them, because the the big drawback of 3D is of course, that it takes a long time and and, and requires a lot more machinery doing it. So I'm saying a a good way to do rapid experimentation for sure, but basically not uh, to go into a full production. Yeah, I mean, I can think of several ways to to manufacture 3D printing templates and like manufacture meat like maybe 50 times faster. So why wouldn't you do that? 
adding on to that, it, it, 3D printing had a lot of promise people got super excited about, and it has been integrated into our manufacturing supply chains outside of food already. It just didn't really have the promise I think a lot of people thought it would, and it's been relegated to prototyping. And why? Because that's what it's good at. Manuf like prototype manufacturing for Tesla. That's a perfect thing to do at $5,000 a part. But when you want to make the car, you're going to get that thing made exactly the same every time. Yeah, good point, Josh. And less than 5,000 bucks, totally. Yeah, you really want to, food, food will not sell for $5,000. That's your next workstation, right? That's your Steve Jobs. Talking about you know, how we expect the price of food to go down, you know, there's an implicit assumption in society. I mean, the biggest challenge is what you can and can't do. Yeah, I think, I think you know, people forget, like, you know, uh, Walt mentioned it, but like when Russia, the embargo went up on Russia, the price of milk in Europe was cheaper than bottled water. So, uh, you know, it's price really matters. Uh, and some of the tech companies forget about that, but nobody wants to survive, Will. Well, awesome. We have uh, two more questions picked here. Maybe I'll share another one. This one, let's take this one here from uh, the Zoom channel directly to Josh. There are a billion people globally who are at the base of the pyramid and protein deficit. How do we all use our innovation to provide them with affordable proteins? Thanks for asking Howard Amis. Uh, Josh, what do you think? So from a technical perspective, animals aren't a very efficient way to give protein. They can't synthesize their own amino acids. There's always a conversion efficiency. There's a lot of waste in terms of parts of the animal that are grown that we can't eat. And so when we look at it that way, there's some clear benefits that should result on cost in the plant-based world relative to animal. And so then you have to ask yourself, well, why is it that plant-based meats have been so expensive to date? And I think there's two big reasons. One, because you can. People are excited about these products. They're willing to buy them. And mm -hmm. getting a higher profit margin lets these companies grow more quickly. And then I think the other answer is that because still the vast majority of the market is in animal protein. You know, plant-based is a small part of the total picture today. And we're talking about an industry here where economies of scale are everything. You know, right now in coronavirus, we're seeing that come back to bite some of the big meat producers because they've centralized into so few meatpacking facilities. But why did they do that in the first place? I mean, they did that in the first place so everything could utilize that massive economy of scale. I mean, we're talking about there's five or six different giant meatpacking facilities in America um, that are being impacted right now. Any one of those meatpacking facilities is at a bigger scale than the entire alternative protein industry in America today. And mm -hmm. so really the first step is going to be getting alternative protein, plant-based protein up to that competitive scale. And when we get there, I'm thoroughly convinced that from a technical perspective, the cost will continue to go down and we'll be able to provide protein at a much more scalable and, and at a better cost, fundamentally speaking, than animal methods because the fundamentals are better. We, we just need to be doing this with bigger equipment, bigger facilities, and bigger supply chains. Well, Ron, do you want to add anything to this? Yeah, so Tommaso, I would. No, I think, that's, I think that's right from Josh. I think over time, the alternative proteins do have some economic advantages when they get to scale. Now, I don't think that's mm. a trivial exercise to get to scale, right? I mean, we can do a billion quarter pounders right now pretty easily because we know how to do that. 
a billion impossible burgers, a billion beyond burgers, right? Those are still in process and they, and they will take some work. I think the challenge is really, this is like the overall food challenge. We hear so much about the feed the world challenge. We grow enough food thanks to the green revolution and Norman Borlaug and all that stuff. And, and you know, we, we've, we've learned how to build food at scale. The problem is not growing more food. The problem is distributing the food effectively, right? Mm -hmm. So in places like the U.S. and Europe where we have very established food supply chains, we can get that food out there and it's in the supermarket right when you need it most of the times, last couple of weeks, <laughs> not so much in some cases. And so it, it, it really, feeding the world isn't a, isn't a farm problem. Feeding the world is a distribution problem. And I would argue this question gets to that same challenge you can use alternative or conventional proteins, but if you don't have a good way to get it to the, to the billion people that are not adequately proteined, it doesn't matter how much you make, right? It's, it's got to be a supply chain improvement over time that really solves this problem. But, but Walt, like I think, you know, some of the hybrid products are already showing a lot of resilience there, right? I mean, the Beyond Burger has been cloned by at least half a dozen different brands. I, got, I went to Safeway yesterday, there's like four brands. <laughs> True. identical product. And like uh, there was an article a couple of year, couple of months ago that basically said that plant-based ground beef is now almost like 3.8% of the market, which is starting to get into real scale. Yep. So I think there's another side of this that, that basically consumers are also being driven. They're not just being pulled by the product. They're also being driven by other trends and, you know, uh, meat's getting more expensive and there's a perception of lower quality. And of course the supply chain has a lot of vulnerabilities the way it's built as we see today. So, you know, all, all, all these things are gonna be in play in the next few years. Right, no, all I'm saying is the, the, billion, the billion people that don't have protein now, they can't access our really good supply chains that get to restaurants and get to grocery stores. So we've got to figure out alternate ways. In other words, it's, it's less about pricing to me and more about access. That's true, although, like I say, like some of the big people who actually have that supply chain are stepping in, they're creating brands. You know, it may not be, it may not always be the company that originated the, uh, the technology, right? You know, like 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 you know, Beyond Meat, right? Like, that's there's right. like a dozen Beyond Meats worldwide. There's a huge one in Brazil right now that's worth several hundred million dollars. They're mm. pretty much a real food company already, and I'd say mm. Beyond Meat already is, is as well. So that transition has been done. It's not, you know, it's hard to compete with Cargill for sure. But yeah. twenty five last year, twenty five percent of the pork supply chain evaporated in just a couple months. Right now, 50% of the beef supply chain in North America has disappeared. That is also a lot of instability that the large manufacturers are gonna to have to bear in or, and the rest of the supply chain as well, right? They're all gonna to have to bear that cost. And uh, so there'll be a lot of vulnerabilities being shifted back and forth on both sides. Well, thank you so much, Walt, Joshua, and, uh, and Ron. We could uh, chat four hours about that, but the really purpose was here to create and provoke, share some information and, and provoke some thoughts for um, our audience. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, again, thank you, Ron, Joshua, and, and Walt for, for the excellent uh, panel discussion and exchange. And with that, I would like to thank you and end up on my preferred uh, quote, my quote that I've been uh, uh, capable of uh, paraphrasing the last, uh, the last 20 years in my four startups. Um, which, which sounds like this. Don't forget where you come from, your corporation, but where you come from cannot limit you to where you want to go. And with that, I would like to thank you. Thank you to our panelists. Stay tuned. See you next week. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Good chat. Thank you.